you have your Bibles, turn them, oh, and you may be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn them with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and we will go ahead and get one over to you to keep and take home if you don't have one or to borrow for today. 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to read the uh, first 20 verses. Apostle Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles." unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, so we preach, and so you believe. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. For if Christ, ha- and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's pray. Father God, because the resurrection of Christ is true, our faith is not in vain and we're not wasting our time here on Sunday morning. This is not a fable. This is not a fairy tale. This is real. This is rooted in history and has implications towards everyone. Father, I pray for the preaching of the Word that it would be guided by the power of the Spirit of God. And I pray for our hearing that it would be guided by the power of the Spirit of God. So that what is said this morning would be from you, and that what we hear this morning would be what you want us to hear. And in all of it, let you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. Happy Resurrection Day. Happy Easter. It's good to see everyone here this morning. Today is the day, unlike any other, more than any other, our focus should be singular. Our focus should be on 
Christ alone today. But if you're like me, uh, perhaps Satan likes to attack most on days like today, and you get distracted and you can lose your focus and you begin to think about many other things. And so my prayer for myself this morning as well as you is to, to get our hearts and our minds solely focused on Christ and his accomplishments on the cross and at the empty tomb. And so this morning there's um, a lot of things that, uh, that can distract me, but I think there's a lot of things in general that distract the church. As I was thinking about this message today and the centrality of what Paul is talking about, the centrality of the gospel and what the church does, uh, I got to thinking about, I, I, I like to take photographs. I'm a, uh, I do a little side photography and videography. And if you're a good photographer, then the object, the subject that you're taking a picture of is going to be in focus. And no matter how beautiful the background might be, the flowers or whatever it is, whatever backdrop you've chosen to take, to put behind whoever the object is of your picture, if you focus on that, let's say I'm taking a picture of Deemer here. We want a nice, pretty picture of Deemer to put out in our foyer to say, this is Deemer. All right. And we're taking a picture of Deemer, and no matter how beautiful the background is, if I, if I focus my lens on the background, I will have done dishonor to the subject, and I will have blurred the subject. And a lot of times in church, we get to doing things. We get to doing activities, and we get to doing um, uh, programs, and we get to focusing on, on topics and on issues, and, and it's very, very easy to shift that focus knob and begin to look at peripheral things and background things and to lose our focus on the centrality of the gospel message. And that's what Paul's trying to bring back to mind here for this church in Corinth. You see, the Corinthian church was plagued by a lot of things. They were plagued by division in the church. They were plagued by pride in the church, people comparing their spiritual gifts with others. They were plagued by misuse of the ordinances of the church, like the Lord's Supper. And people were coming to the Lord's Supper and, and getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Um, they were plagued by all sides. They were plagued by a lack of love. And so Paul gives them the tremendous 1 Corinthians 13 passage that tells them, if you don't have love, everything else you're doing is totally zero, insufficient. And so there were lots of problems in the Corinthian church. And then he comes to this passage here, and he wants to bring a reminder to them. And I think what he's saying when he says this is, I want you to get your focus back on where it should be. Christianity is all about the gospel, and the gospel is all about the life, death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus Christ. Christianity is not a set of morals. Christianity is not some ethical system or some set of religious practices. Today we kind of use the word faith. He's a person of faith and it's just kind of refer to someone's um, uh, beliefs or someone's religious position. But faith defined by in scripture is an unshakable confidence in an unshakable truth. And that truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christianity stands or falls with the gospel message, the good news of Jesus. So I want to jump into this real quick here. Let's look at the first verse and, and a little bit of introduction into as Paul brings this reminder of the gospel to them. And then I want us to dig into this passage and bring out six truths about the gospel. 
Six truths about the gospel, and those truths will build on one another. And guys, I don't know what I did with the clicker. I don't know if I left it back there or not. So you guys are going to have to just follow along with me. It may be in my office or something, so don't worry about it. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Let's look at the first verse here. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul here says he's going to remind them. He's going to remind the people of the gospel. I love this because the gospel never gets old. It's never old news. It's always good news and relevant news. You can't hear the gospel enough. The gospel is inexhaustible. And it's, it's the deepest truth in all of Scripture. Okay, if you want to get deep into Scripture, you go to the gospel. Because the gospel is the deepest truth of all of Scripture. A lot of times people will go do series on Revelation or on Daniel and think and feel, oh, I'm getting really deep because I'm getting into this prophecy and these complex passages. But the deepest place you can go in Scripture is where Paul takes the Corinthian church to, and that is the gospel. You can't mine its depths enough. You cannot exhaust the implications it has upon our daily living from everything we do. You cannot, cannot exhaust the gospel The gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest, deepest, most powerful truth in all of Scripture. And we are to be reminded of it regularly. We are to be preaching it regularly. We are to be focusing on it all the time. You can never exhaust its power. It is the power unto salvation, according to Romans 1.16. And according to this passage, you are being saved. And if the gospel is the power unto salvation, and if you are being saved, then the gospel is relevant to you right now, where you are right now. You are saved by the gospel, and you are being saved by the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not some story that we just accept and believe in, and then we go on with our life, or we go on with the rest of our Christianity. The gospel informs everything that we do. In reality, we submit to it. We should submit to it daily. He reminds them because the gospel is always relevant. Okay, relevant is a word that's kind of a, it's either a bad word to people in the church or it's a good word to people in the church. We talk about relevant, especially when you put the word culturally relevant in front of it. Now, I have my own thoughts on that, and that's what the sermon's about today. I think that obviously we have to, when we take the gospel to someone, if I go to Ecuador, where I grew up, and I take the gospel to the people of Ecuador, but I'm not aware of their culture, and I'm speaking in English instead of Spanish, okay, they're not going to hear the gospel, because I'm not being relevant. The message hasn't become irrelevant. I've become irrelevant, the messenger. The message of the gospel is always relevant. It's relevant in every context, in every place in the world, and we must be mindful of how we take it to the people. What I'm more concerned with is whether or not we are preaching the gospel. Yes, we must focus on methods that allow us to communicate well, but our main focus is the relevant message of the gospel that never becomes irrelevant. And who does he remind here? It says, I remind you brothers. I would remind you brothers. This gospel reminder is for the believers in the church. One of the other problems we have, we think that the gospel is just this story for unbelievers. I need to get deeper than the gospel. I need to get into some other things. The gospel is just a message you give to the unbelievers. Go share that with the lost. 
He's talking about the brothers here, the church, the Christians. It's for the saved to always be reminded to keep our minds on, to keep our focus on, to keep our lips proclaiming the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, before he gets into the meat of the gospel, which is what he's going to do, he's going to remind them of what the gospel is. Before he gets into the meat of the gospel, he reminds them of the manner in which the gospel was taken hold of, the manner in which it came to them. He says, first, it must be preached. He says, this gospel I preached to you. The gospel message is something to be heralded. It's something to be preached. It's something to be proclaimed. There is a verbal element to the spread of the gospel. It's not just an element. It's necessary. We must preach the gospel. What's the most important thing that can happen in any church in any part of America? Is it the Sunday school program? Is it the outreach programs? Is it the small group discipleship programs? What is it? The most important thing, and I'm not trying to build me up, the most important thing that any church can do is preach the gospel. Okay, if you're looking for a healthy church and you go searching around for a healthy church and they have great kids stuff and they have great discipleship stuff, but the preaching stinks, it's not a strong church. Because preaching is God's means. Preaching is the method that God has chosen for the proclamation of the gospel, for the spread of the gospel. Romans 10, 14 says... How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Paul is reminding them that the gospel is to be preached. But he also talks about it being received. He says, which you received. The gospel must either be received or rejected. The Corinthian church had received it. Thus they were now part of God's family. What does it mean to receive the gospel? And I think we have to be careful there because sometimes we can take that word receive and put baggage onto it that's not necessary, that doesn't belong to it. And we, we turn the word receive into a man-centered activity that, you know, we've got to go get the gospel. Like it's a present sitting on a table. Hey, go receive your present. But I don't believe that's what it means. I believe receive is equated with faith, biblical faith. The reason I believe that is John 1.12. Because I believe John gives us the definition of receive when he says, But to all who did receive him, and then he qualifies, that says what it is, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's a way of looking at the gospel where we take the emphasis off of God and we put it on us and say, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta. But in reality, the gospel is about what God has done. And the only way we receive it is to acknowledge that we can't do nothing. That we are totally helpless and therefore we fall on our faces and we fall on our knees and plead and have faith and hope and trust in God to save us. I was trying to think of some way to think of receive the way we think of the word in that way. And I know it's not football season, but just this morning as I was coming in, I was thinking, okay, there's, there's a difference in the way a, a, a fullback receives the ball from the quarterback and the way a receiver receives the ball from a quarterback. And the fullback, the quarterback's just there, and he has it, and the, and the fullback just takes it and runs and goes. But the receiver, and if you're watching a good NFL team, the receiver will be, will be running, and he'll have his hands open, and he'll turn, and he just trusts that the quarterback's going to lay that ball right there at the right time in the numbers, right when he turns around, and he receives the ball. And so I want us to have them, or that image that when we receive the gospel, it's putting our hope and trust in God Raising our hands saying, God, there's nothing I can do. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm spiritually impoverished. 
I have nothing to bring to you, God. Therefore, I beg you in faith to save me. And that's the receiving of the gospel. And so it had to be received. He says, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. In which you stand. Their hope, what they stood on, was the gospel. Not their ability to receive. What they stood on was the gospel message. They stood firm. It was their security. And not only was it their security, it's what they believed with conviction, with all their heart. So they stood on this firm, solid base, which, was, which is the gospel. And finally, the gospel is the means by which they are being saved. It says, and by which you are being saved. Being saved. I think sometimes that's confusing to us because don't we learn, right? When you're growing up as a kid, your parents say, you, you are saved. You've been saved. So what is this being saved? Are we saved once and forever? Yes, we are saved. Well, yes, the Bible teaches us that it was finished. And therefore, we were justified by God's grace through faith in Christ. That is the gospel. We are, we are, seen, we are justified before God. He looks upon us, does not see our sins, sees the righteousness of Christ for all those who have received him, for those who have professed his name. But yes, there's also an element of the gospel in that we're being saved. That's our sanctification by grace through faith in Christ as well. That we are being made into the image of Christ. It's the already, not yet, reality of the gospel that we talk about a lot of times. The way I like to put it is you are becoming who you already are. If you truly pace saving faith in Jesus Christ, then you are becoming, you are being saved, you are becoming who you already are in Christ. So I believe that's what Paul talks about here. So think about that. What are the implications of that? How are we sanctified? It's not like I hear the gospel, Jesus died, buried, and rose again. I believe in that, accept that, therefore I'm now saved. And now I go on to some deeper stuff. How are we being saved? By constantly keeping our minds on that same message and mining the depths of that message and thinking about what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus died for sin? What does it mean that he died for sin when I think about how I treat my children, when I think about the the problems I have in, in my workplace, when I think about all these things, I have to keep coming back to the gospel and thinking about what Christ has accomplished and how does that change everything else in my life? It's the gospel is the means by which we are being saved. If, now there is an if here, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, perseverance of the saints. Those who persevere to the end are the ones who are saved. Perseverance proves that one is being saved. Perseverance proves that one is standing in the gospel. Perseverance proves that someone has received the gospel by faith. Perseverance does not save you, okay? It proves that you're saved. It does not say that they are saved by holding fast. It says that if you're saved, you'll hold fast to the word I preach to you. So after reminding them of the effect of the gospel in their lives, now he wants to remind them of the gospel itself. And that's found in verse 3. So let's start walking through this passage starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now the gospel is this amazing truth that is delivered and received all throughout history. Now Paul himself 
received direct revelation from Christ. He goes out of his way to point out that he did not receive it from the other apostles, but Jesus Christ gave him the gospel directly. But for everyone else in history outside of the apostles, it's been something we've received from the apostolic teaching and something we deliver to others. And so that's the beauty for 2,000 years, this giving, this delivering and receiving, delivering and receiving has gone on and on and on. It's not something we invent. It's something we receive. Now the first thing I want us to see is the gospel is the central truth of our faith. The gospel is the central truth of our faith. He says, of first importance, more important than anything else. He's about to share with them the gospel again. He says, this is of first importance. It's the priority. It's the best. It's the chief. It's the uppermost of importance in their lives. There's urgency implied in this Greek word. There's nothing more important, nothing more central than the gospel message of Jesus Christ himself. It is the foundation, it is the fundamental truth of our faith. When a coach is helping a, a team, let's say, what is it, basketball season now, and, and, and the teams, I played basketball when I was in high school, and um, I wasn't very good. Yes, I know you're looking at me and you're saying, Five foot eight, basketball. Okay, I didn't play much. Okay, I did more of the, hey, Doyle, will you grab the balls over there and bring them out here for us? Okay, that was more my role on the team. But when the team began to mess up, and you guys have been involved in sports, you know this. When the team begins to mess up or you've been through a series of bad games, what does the coach always say? Guys, we got to get back to, back to the fundamentals. Back to the basics. And that's what Paul's doing here. He said, this is the foundational, fundamental truth of all the Bible, of all Christianity. I want to remind you of it. It's getting the, he's getting the Corinthian church's attention. He should be getting our attention as well. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. There you have it. Let me say it again. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There is nothing in the universe more important than that sentence. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So this truth that he's sharing with them is the central, fundamental truth of all of Christianity. But I guarantee you today, you walk around, especially in Western Christendom, in the United States in particular, and you go around and you listen to a lot of what's happening at churches and what you're hearing at churches. And I'm not sure we're hearing that the gospel is the central truth of our faith. We're hearing that Jesus wants to fix your marriage. Jesus wants to help you with your finances. Jesus wants to help you find a spouse. Jesus wants to do this. Jesus wants to do that. Jesus, Jesus died for sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again according to the scriptures. If everything else in your life isn't filtered through that monumental sentence including finding a wife, fixing your finances, fixing your marriage, everything else. If everything else isn't filtered through that, we're way off base. 
The gospel is the central truth of our faith. <coughs> Guys, it's not working back there. The gospel is the central truth of our faith. And number two, Christ is the central figure of the gospel. Christ is the central figure of the gospel. It says Christ died, was buried, and raised. The gospel is Jesus. But we've been trained that the gospel is about us, haven't we? Yes, it does say he died for our sins, and we'll get to that in a second. But the gospel is all about Christ, what Christ accomplished. It's not particularly, primarily about us. But the way the gospel is often presented and the way we talk, especially I think when we talk to children about the gospel, we sit here and we turn it to, it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus did this, Jesus did that, all about you, when in reality the gospel is all about Jesus. God loves you. Yes, that's true. Sin is keeping you out of heaven. Yes, that's true. Jesus died for you. That is true. If you turn to him, you'll be saved. That is also true. So that you can be in heaven forever, which may be true. But it's the focus of our presentation that's often lacking. The focus of our presentation shouldn't be you. You, 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 heaven, you, this, you. The focus of our presentation is Christ. This is what Christ did, and how are you going to respond to it? Are you going to turn? Because if you understand what Christ did, then you repent. But if you think it's all about you, it's not about repentance. It's about a cool gift and a ticket to heaven. I want to get on the Jesus elevator. When in reality, it's about turning from sin because we're aware of this amazing truth of what Jesus did on the cross and why he died and how he died. Man is not the central protagonist in the gospel. Jesus is. It's all about him and what he accomplished. Present the gospel. Share Jesus. But do it in such a way that you exalt the glories of Christ, not the decisions and desires of man. We too easily present the gospel like we're selling a vacuum cleaner. What's in it for you? Here's what you're going to get. We'll throw in this. When in reality, let us present the glories of Calvary, telling men of Jesus, and letting men respond as they should when they've had eyes that have been truly opened to the glories of the cross. When our eyes have been opened to Golgotha, when our eyes have been opened to the empty tomb, when our eyes have been opened to that, response will come. We don't need a sales job. John Stott said, The gospel is not preached if Christ is not preached. Number three. So Christ is the central figure of the gospel. But number three. The cross and the empty tomb are the central feats of Christ. Bring that up for me back there, guys. Number three. The cross and the empty tomb are the central feats of Christ. It says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. Without cross, death, burial, resurrection, there is no gospel. Without empty tomb, risen again, alive, there is no gospel. Okay, I know this may seem basic. You're saying, okay, Steve, I know this. But it's so easy for churches to think the gospel or to not want to talk about the cross, to not want to talk about the tomb, to not want to talk about the blood and, and turn the gospel into something else. 
It's very easy to find this. You, you don't have to search far to find people saying, well, the gospel really is about loving people. Is that what the gospel really is? Or the gospel is about ethics. Jesus' is ethics. Is that really what the gospel is? Or the gospel is about social justice. Is that really what the gospel is? All these things are good. I have no problem with any of these things. All these things are right and they should be practiced by the church if they flow out of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his subsequent victorious rising from the dead three days later. You cannot love people rightly without that truth. Without believing in that truth. You cannot have proper ethics unless they've been molded by that truth. You cannot carry out social justice unless you understand the justice of God reflected in that truth. So the cross and the empty tomb are the central feats of Christ. There is no gospel message without it. Number four, payment for sin is a central accomplishment of the cross. It says Christ died for our sins. I find this very interesting. He doesn't just say Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. That's the gospel message. He doesn't say that. Paul goes out of his way to throw doctrine into this and to say Christ died for something. He died for sins. He didn't just die. He died for a reason. He died to accomplish something. Christ died for a purpose. And that purpose was to atone for the sins of his people by receiving the wrath of God on, on their behalf and imputing upon them his own righteousness. It is not in much historical doubt that Jesus died on the cross. Most people you talk to believe that Jesus died on the cross. Most historians you talk to believe that Jesus did die. There are some who deny it. But ask any person why. Ask many Christians why. And you'll get some interesting answers. Okay, some people will say, well, he died as a martyr. Just to kind of be a martyr for the faith. And to, that sort of pumps up the rest of the Christians once he dies. You don't see the disciples very pumped after the cross. Or he was a revolutionary. Or he was demonstrating, this is the popular one today, why did Jesus die on the cross? To demonstrate true love. Or to set an example of sacrifice. Jesus was a revolutionary. He does set an example of sacrifice. And his love is poured out in his own blood on the cross. But not primarily, that's not his primary purpose for going to the cross. He died to pay for sin. Sin, the open, blatant, intentional rebellion of men against a holy God and a good God that deserves eternal punishment, eternal flames, was expiated, it was paid for, it was atoned for by a sinless God-man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the promised one, the Christ, the Messiah. That's why he died. He came, according to his own words, not to be an example of love. According to his own words, he said to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. Sometimes people look at the, 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 the epistles, especially the ones of Paul, and say, well, the atonement and all this stuff, that stuff Paul put in later, Jesus doesn't teach that stuff. Yes, he does. Mark 10, 45 is right there. He gave his life as a ransom for many. That is the atonement. 
Matthew 26, 28. Having the Lord's Supper, getting ready to institute the communion, the Lord's Supper, he says this, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's the atonement. The phrase died for our sins involves a convergence of deep, deep themes. God, his nature, his wrath, his justice, his sovereign purposes, our depravity, our helplessness, our death, judgment. So these simple words, he died for our sins, have huge weight. Don't just read over that and say, oh yeah, he died. Think about what that means. He died for our sins. Other texts in scripture immediately jump to your mind when you think about Christ dying for our sins. Romans 4.25 says that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Romans 5.6 says that Christ died for the ungodly. Galatians 1.4 says the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Ephesians 1.7 says, For in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. That's what he died for sins is all about. What does this secure for us? What does this mean for us? What does it mean for me right now to think that he died for my sins? What does it mean for me tomorrow and forever? These are the things that we should be thinking upon all the time. These are the focus points. We should be thinking about Christ died for me. How does that change the way I am doing this particular activity in my life? How does it change the way I spend my time? What does it mean for me? Payment for sin is the central accomplishment of the cross. Number five, the vindication of Christ and the validation of his sacrifice is the central claim of the empty tomb. The vindication of Christ and the validation of his sacrifice is the central claim of the empty tomb. Now I want to read with you through some of what it means that the tomb was empty. And really Paul kind of gives some negative implications as if the, if the tomb, if the tomb, if Jesus wasn't raised, if the tomb's not empty, then there's some negative implications here. So let's read through some of these. Verse 4 says that he was raised on the third day. Now if you go down to verse 12, it says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Little context here, that's part of the problem, is there's other people in the church in Corinth saying, you know what, you're not going to be raised from the dead. People don't rise from the dead. And Paul is saying, well, if people don't rise from the dead, and all people will raise, rise from the dead, some will raise to the resurrection of the just unto life. Others will be raised for eternal damnation. But there will be a resurrection. So Paul says, listen, if, if people have not been, if, how can some of you say there's not a resurrection of the dead? Verse 13, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, here's the first implication, then our preaching is in vain. And here's the second implica implication. And your faith is in vain. Here's the third implication. And we are found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So he gives us three implications there. And then he's going to take it even a step further. Verse 
16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So he says the same argument again. The dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, here's the fourth implication. Your faith is futile. It's weak. It's useless. Number five. You are still in your sins. And number six, verse 18. Then all, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Your faith is weak. It's futile, it's ineffective, it's useless, and you are still in your sins. But what does this mean? I thought my sins were paid for on the cross, not at the resurrection. Where were the sins paid for? Were they paid for at the, at the cross? Didn't he say it is finished? Why then is the resurrection so important? It was the blood of the Lamb that paid the price, isn't it? He died for sins. We just read a bunch of passages that said that. There's no passages necessarily that say outright that the resurrection paid for our sins. Yet Paul says here, if Jesus has not risen, there's no payment for your sin. No resurrection, no atonement, no forgiveness, no imputation of righteousness, no justification, no sanctification, no glorification. So what does Paul mean here? Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a demonstration that his sacrifice was complete. That his sacrifice was received and accepted by the Father. That his sacrifice was sufficient. And he is raised as a reward of his own sacrifice with victory in his hand, triumphing over death, triumphing over sin, crushing them underneath his feet. If Christ does not rise, it would have demonstrated that the sacrifice was insufficient. And if the sacrifice was insufficient or deficient in some sort of way, well, then we are still in our sins. People in Paul's day wanted to dismiss the idea of resurrection. People in our day want to dismiss the possibility of resurrection. You'll hear a thousand theories as to what happened. The, the empty tomb is the greatest proof for the historicity of the gospel message. But there are people today that say, well, he wasn't really dead. He was just sort of kind of in a coma. Or maybe the disciples stole the body. Or maybe his opponents stole the body. Or maybe the women went to the wrong tomb. You'll hear that as well. They just went to the wrong tomb and it was a big confusion. And then Christianity just started from someone going, getting the wrong address, basically. No, this is a historical fact. The Bible makes it clear. There are plenty of witnesses. We have it here in this text. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Paul says this was a very early epistle. Paul wrote this epistle before the, 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 this was written before the Gospels are written. So he says, you know what, there are actually some still that are alive if you need to talk to them, if you need some proof. 500, he was, he was shown to 500 people at once. Some of them had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's his brother his half-brother, then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Thomas Arnold, a famous historian who was one of the world's greatest historians, wrote history textbooks that are, some are even still used today. He was a historian at Oxford and also at rugby. He said this, I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better, fuller evidence of every sort to, that, to the understanding of a fair inquirer 
than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the grave. It is no exaggeration to maintain that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most attested to historical facts in the world. That is not an exaggeration. But I think today people are creeped out a bit by the resurrection. They think of it, they think of, light of the, night of the living dead or something when they think about rising again. But the resurrection of Christ isn't a horror story. It's a glory story and a story that one day we too will participate in if we are in Christ. There was a few years ago a reporter in Australia was asking a question to an Anglican archbishop in Australia. He asked this question, If we discovered the tomb of Jesus and could somehow prove that the remains in the tomb were Jesus' remains, what would that do to your faith? How would you answer that? Here's what the archbishop said. He replied, it wouldn't do anything to my faith. Jesus Christ has risen in my heart. That was his response. I'm afraid the Apostle Paul understands the issue with much more straightforward clarity. He says, if Christ has not risen, your faith is futile. Your faith is absolutely futile. In other words, part of the validation of faith is the truthfulness of faith's object. In this case, Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus has not risen, we can believe till the cows come home, but it is still futile belief that makes us look really silly, according to Paul. He would say, we are of all people most to be pitied. Therefore, the resurrection is either true or it's not true. Your faith is either there or it's not there. You cannot have some sort of in-between. Well, you know, if it's not true, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. If the cross is not empty, the sacrifice of Christ has not been validated. It's not been accepted. You are still in your sins and we're all bound for hell if there's no resurrection. This day is huge. It's huge. The resurrection is huge. It is not to be made light of. It's just not a, a happy ending to a story. It is the vindication of Jesus Christ as the sinless perfect son of God who died for our sins, paid the price for our sins on the cross, gave us his righteousness, rose again, and God says, this has been accepted. That's what the gospel is about. The vindication of Christ and the validation of his sacrifice is the central claim of the empty tomb. We need to know what the empty tomb is all about. If you watched the Passion of the Christ, when it came out years ago, my, the thing I was most disappointed with with the movie, but overall it was stirring and amazing and moving, but what I was most disappointed with was the ending. Because they gave a grand total of maybe 10 seconds of screen time to the resurrection. Because they didn't go far enough. They didn't go to the empty tomb and really explore what that meant. And finally, number six for me, guys. The gospel is the central focus of the whole of Scripture. Go back to the top of the passage here. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. In accordance with the Scriptures. In accordance with the Scriptures. All the Bible points to the gospel. Therefore, any part of this book that we preach should be able to be pointed back 
either forward if you're preaching from the Old Testament or back if you're preaching from parts of the New Testament to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The whole Bible is about the cross. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. You can read about that if you want. Isaiah 53, which we did this morning. He was also raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You can read about that also in Isaiah 53 if you want or in Psalm 16. But we don't have to go back and prove it right now. We just take what Jesus said for granted. Luke 24, 25, he says this as he's talking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after he's risen, and they're totally shattered. Their whole, their whole understanding of Christ has been totally shattered because Christ has died. They don't know that he's risen again. And he says this, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, interpreted to them in all the scriptures, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And this is what part of what we've been talking about with the Jesus tribe. It's one big story from beginning to end that points to the cross. If we don't have Good Friday, the cross... And Easter, the empty tomb, we don't have any hope. But friends, we do have hope. Because 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of all who have fallen asleep. And later, at the very end of this passage, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So let's do stuff as a church. Let's do things. Let's do programs. Let's teach. Let's disciple. Let's have small groups. Let's do stuff Let's let our work be immovable. Let's be steadfast. But what's that founded upon? What's that focused upon? The gospel. If we do all these other things well, but we don't do gospel well, then we fail. Fail. It's really that simple. If we do everything else well, but don't do gospel well, keep our focus on the cross, then we fail. So let's pray right now. Let's close our eyes and let's give glory to Christ for the accomplishments on the cross and thank him, Lord. Thank him today for the empty tomb. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we lift up our prayers to you with great confidence. Great confidence uh, as you stand before the throne, intercede on our behalf. Great confidence that we can come to that throne of grace and lift up these petitions and lift up these praises to you. Oh Lord, I pray that as we come here this morning that we wouldn't be thinking of the gospel as, well, it's just some story that you got to believe in and nothing else. Or... Yeah, it's important to get your Christian walk started with the gospel, but after that, you've got to go deeper. Now, the gospel is the depth. Everything else points to the gospel. So, God, I pray, Lord, that we would be gospel-centered people, cross-centered people, 
Lord, we be a cross-centered church, a gospel-centered church. And Lord, we celebrate the empty tomb as the validation that the sacrifice, your sacrifice, Jesus, was sufficient. We don't have to add anything to it. Oh God, forgive us. We all add to it. We add to it in so many different ways. We don't even realize it. We add things that we think we need to do. We add a few works here or there. We add some church attendance. God, don't let us add anything to the sacrifice. Instead, let the sacrifice and the empty tomb, let it change everything we do. Let it be the focus, the engine that determines all of our actions, that determines our programs as a church, that determines our activities as a church. Let it be the engine, the focus that determines all those things. Don't let us get it backwards and say we're going to do these things and add them to the great gospel message. So God, keep our priority right. Keep the gospel of first importance in each one of our hearts. Keep the gospel of first importance in our church. We pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand if you would as Mark leads us in a closing song. this together. Everyone needs compassion. Love is never failing. Everyone needs compassion. Love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on Everyone needs forgiveness, kindness of a Savior, the hope of nations. Savior, He can move the mountains, my God is mighty. Forever, author of salvation, he rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the Jesus conquered the grave, yeah. 
shine your light and let the whole world see. Seeing for the glory of the risen King. Shine your light and let the whole world see. We're singing for the glory of the risen All right, uh, you may be seated, and um, we're going to move into baptism right now. We have a baptism to, uh, to do and to celebrate today. Um, one of my favorite scriptures that uh, talks about baptism and, and really gives a good explanation of what's going on and what we're doing when we're baptizing somebody is in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses uh, 20 and 21. Peter is talking about uh, the days of Noah, where the, the waters of God's judgment is threatening a wicked world. And Peter talks about uh, God's patience waiting in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few... That is, eight persons were safely brought through water. Baptism, Peter says, which corresponds to this. In other words, he's saying baptism is corresponding to that, that judgment story in the book of Genesis. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what's Peter saying? Peter's saying uh, the removal of dirt from the body, getting wet in the water, is not what's saving you when you're being baptized. But what is it? Peter tells you, says that baptism is saving you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So what is going on when somebody is being baptized is that they are publicly expressing their faith in Jesus Christ, an appeal to God for a good conscience. So when we're baptizing somebody, we are, we're recognizing that, that the dangers of, of God's judgment was over that person. The floodwaters of judgment were coming to that person just like they were threatening the world in the days of Noah. And just as, as with Noah, Noah was saved through that judgment and brought safely through the, the floodwaters to the other side, uh, so it is with those of us who place our faith in Christ. Judgment is coming, and because of our union with Christ, those floodwaters of judgment have come upon us because they came upon Christ and just as Christ was brought safely through the other side of that judgment, through his resurrection from the dead, which we are celebrating today, so it is for all of us who place our faith in Christ, which is why when we baptize somebody, we don't keep them under the water. We bring them up out of the water. They've been brought safely through God's judgment, and they, are, they have died with Christ, and they are now rising with Christ. And that's what we're recognizing when a baptism happens. And so I'm going to turn it over to Steve now. <laughs> Go ahead, Steve. He's a little chilly. 